One is a willingness to be surprised by how nice God is. That you never get stuck thinking God is one way. Everything about Pentecost was surprising. It started with resurrection. Surprise. In your experience, do dead people stay dead? Yes. So when Jesus comes back from the dead, does that go against all experience? Yes, that's a surprise. You have to create room in your brain for, for, to be able to accept that. Dead people stay dead. Jesus comes back from the dead. It's not just about heaven. It's an opening of new possibilities. If you were wrong about death, what else could you be wrong about? What else could we put on the table? My goodness, we were wrong about death. Well, that's pretty basic. What else could we be wrong about? Surprise. Then Jesus comes back from the dead and he, and, and he doesn't take over Rome. He says, they, they, his followers, they, they, he comes back from the dead and they don't go, hey, when are we going to heaven? That was never in the ancient Jewish mindset. It was always in the ancient Jewish mindset that God was going to establish a kingdom on the earth. And when Jesus came back, they thought he was going to do it then. And he said, we're going to take over Rome now, right? And he said, no, I'm going to leave you to do that. Surprise. They said, how do we do that? He says, listen, do not take up the sword against Rome. If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. You do not take on the masters of swords with swords. What we're going to do is we're going to take over the world with love. Surprise. Then he says, but if you wait here in Jerusalem for 50 days, I'll undo you with power. So they didn't even know what that looked like. They just do 50 days from then with something called Pentecost, which they celebrated every year anyway. We're going to talk about that in a second. So, so they, they're sitting there, and, and the Holy Spirit shows up over them in the form of a language inside fire. Surprise. Then they get surprised over and over and over again. The, the, the guy that God chooses to pastor the first Gentile church is a Roman centurion named Cornelius who didn't even know Peter wasn't God. He says, Peter shows up at his house, Cornelius bows down to Peter. Peter says, no, 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 I'm not God. He goes, you're not God? Really? No, I'm not God. What, what do you want from me? God wants you to pastor the first church. Cornelius says, why me? I didn't even know you weren't God. And Peter says, because you've been generous to the poor. And your righteousness has already been counted to you by God. Surprise. Peter allowed to say that? Is God allowed to do that? Is God allowed to count someone righteous when he doesn't even know who he is? But he keeps responding in his heart? Hmm. Is he allowed? Is God allowed to do that? But you know what? To believe that, you have to open up. You have to be willing to be surprised. Then you know what surprised them big time? Is in, in Acts 11 and in Acts 18 that the um, gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on non-Jewish people. Because they thought that the Holy Spirit was only for Jews. And then they get surprised when God pours his life out on people not like them. The, the, the basis of Pentecost was not tongue-talking. The basics of Pentecost was a heart positioning to be willing to be surprised at what God can do. It's an adherence to the thought, maybe, just maybe, God's nicer than you think. Maybe, just maybe, God's nicer. The second thing about Pentecost was it ended with a generosity. In Leviticus 23, don't turn there, I'll tell you about it. In Leviticus 23, it gives all the commands around Pentecost. And the last command of Pentecost is... Be sure not to forget the poor and the alien. 
Be sure not to forget the poor and the alien. That's why in Acts chapter 2, after all the tongue talking and tongues of fire and all the, are they drunk with wine and all of that stuff, what do they end up doing in Acts chapter 2? They end up selling what they can and helping their poor brothers and sisters. Why? They were adhering to the command that was there all along. So Pentecost isn't primarily about tongue talking, although I'm all for it. Pentecost is about a positioning of your heart to be able to accept God doing something that you didn't think he could do. And it's about positioning your heart towards the betterment of other people. It's about a group of people who say, we're not going to sit around and wait to go to heaven one day. We're going to bring heaven to every place we see hell on earth now. Remember, the earliest definitions of salvation had nothing to do with going to heaven. Those were definitions made up in around the 1700s. The earliest definitions of salvation found in the book of Exodus was, had nothing to do with heaven. They didn't know about heaven. They didn't know about hell. It was just basic. The, the basic, the most basic earliest definition of salvation was God wants to free you from slave drivers. Whatever's driving your life other than God, God wants to set you free from that here, now, today. That, that there's, a, there's a part of salvation that is someday, and we should embrace it, and we should love it, and we should honor it, and, and we should thank God for it. But there's also a big area of salvation that's called salvation now, here, today, that God wants to save you from whatever is holding you back, from whatever's driving your life other than God. Now, to understand this and to understand Pentecost, we have to understand that the entire book of Exodus was a marriage proposal. The entire book of Exodus was a marriage proposal. I'm going to take you guys through this. If, if, if you want to take some notes here, let me, give you the, let me give you the six main points, and everything I'm going to say is going to fall under these six main points, okay? I'm going to give them to you in Hebrew, all right? I'm going to give you the words in Hebrew, and then we're going to go through and define them in English, and I'm going to show them to you in Exodus, okay? If you're, if you're a note taker, just put number one, and then put the word laka, L-A-C-A-H. Laka. Then you want to leave yourself a little bit of space. And then put number two. Number two is Segula. S-E-G-U-L-A-H. Segula. S-E-G-U-L-A-H. Then leave yourself some space. And put a number three. And number three is Mikvah. M-I-K-V-E-H. Mikvah. Then leave yourself some space and write a number four and put the word ketubah. K-A-T-T-U-B-A-H. Ketubah. K-A-T-T-U-B-A-H. Then underneath ketubah as a sub point of number four, you want to leave yourself some space, and then as a sub point of number four, I want you to write the word anochi, A-N-O-C-H-Y. Trust me, all this will make sense. A-N-O-C-H-Y. Then leave yourself some space and write a number five. Number five is the word hupa, C-H-U-P-P-A-H. Hupa. All right? C-H-U-P-P-A-H. Now, so here's what we've got to understand, okay? Every, every Jewish wedding followed this, this protocol. All right, so I want to teach you these words. All right, so you've all written them down. 
So I want us to repeat them so we learn them, okay? So everybody say, Laka. All right? Segula. Mikvah. Ketubah. Chupah. All right? We're going to get to Anarchy in a minute, all right? All right, let's try that one more time. Number one is Laka. Number two is Segula. Number three is Mikvah. Number four is Ketubah. And number five is Chupah. Chupah, Chupah, Iba, Iba. All right. Right? Now, every Hebrew wedding followed this pattern, okay? So let me, let me tell you this in the natural, and then we'll get to the spiritual, okay? So let's say, let's say you and I were together, all right? And, we, and what's your name? I'm sorry. Sandra. All right, so let's say Sandra and I are together, and, and we're sort of dating, we're doing our thing, all right? And we start to get a certain amount of chemistry, all right? So after a certain amount of chemistry, we start t talking about is there a future between me and you. It's, at some point, especially as adults, it becomes irresponsible to date. It's, it's like, listen, is this going somewhere or is this not going somewhere? And if it's not going somewhere, we need to drop it. And if it is going somewhere, we need to start the process of that. So let's say we decided that this is going somewhere. As a woman, in, if we could translate this into first century, early ancient Hebrew culture, as a woman, the words she would be longing to hear me say to her would be what? Laka. Laka in English means my own. The word laka was the initiation point of a marriage process. So one night we're out on a date and we go to BJ's Pizza and um, we're, I'm sitting across from her and she bites into BJ's favorite pizza and the sausage juice comes up her face and she can't, it's just unbelievable. And she's getting the cheese off and I think, you know what, I could be with this woman. This is, this is just awesome. This woman's real and raw and just BJ's pizza. And so I say, all right, so, so I, I get her home and, and I say, you know what, Sandra, laka, well. On the outside, she tries to stay calm, but she's very, very excited. And so as soon as she runs inside, she calls all of her friends and she says, you're not going to believe this. He said, lachotomy. He said, lachotomy. Oh my God. He said, lachotomy. Okay. Laka means my own. That was my way in the ancient Hebrew world of initiating not just a dating relationship, but initiating a marriage ceremony. It was the initiation of a marriage process. Turn to Exodus chapter 6. So you have this group of slaves that God is determining to free from slavery. I purposely set this up tonight as a Bible study because it's Thursday night, you're in church, I figured you'd get more out of it that way. Exodus chapter 6, um, verse 6. I don't have it right in front of me, so you've got to give me some space, okay? Give me some, some grace to paraphrase. It says, and I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I am determining to do something to set you free from the suffering and the oppression of your slave drivers. Something like that, okay? So once again, the earliest definitions of salvation was being set free from slave drivers, being set free from what oppresses you. Something's driving your life other than God, and God is determined to do something about it, not in heaven one day, but here 
now, today, verse 7. He takes his redemption one step further. In verse 6, he declares his intention to set them free from slave drivers. I, in other words, I want to be your redeemer. I want to be your rescuer, all of that. But in verse 7, he takes it one step further. And he says, and I will take you as my own. The word in Hebrew there is laka. Laka. Now, if ancient Hebrew people are hearing this, what are they thinking? They're thinking, does God want to marry us? Is, is God initiating a marriage ceremony with a group of slaves who have severe issues? And, and what would your initial thought be to that? If, if, I'm going to try to make you put yourself in their shoes. We tend to read the Bible very unemotionally because we want doctrine. But think for a second. If there was a God and all you knew about this God was that he was infinitely powerful and you just knew he killed all the Egyptian firstborns and he parted the Red Sea and now he wants to do life with you, but he doesn't just want to rescue from Egypt, he wants you to be his wife. <clears throat> What's your initial thought? Terrified. Like, does God want to marry us? My question would be, what does he want? What does he expect from us? Is he going to expect all of our firstborns? He just proved his capability of killing all the firstborns. What's he going to expect? In the ancient world, some of them even had to cut themselves. Is he one of those gods? Is he one of those gods that makes people cut? Is he one of those gods that's into child sacrifice and torture? Remember, they don't know anything about him. This is their first encounter. And this god, who all they know is, is he's pretty daggum powerful. That, that all they know is now he wants to do life intimately with them. That is a scary and awe-filled thought. But in another sense, it's like, wait a minute, this awesome God wants to marry us? That is amazing. La ka. I don't, in other words, I don't want to just redeem you and set you free from bondage. I want to create a whole new life. I, I, I want you to be mine. It's, I, just don't, I don't want to just do this and then walk away from you. I want to be a part of your life every single day. La ka. Now, back to the natural. Sandra and I, I've said la ka. What word would she be longing to hear now? Look at your notes. Segula. For a woman, how long does the excitement around la ka last? Not long. It's not long before she, her girlfriends are calling her going, has he said Segula yet? Girl, has he said Segula yet? Does he have a problem with commitment? Why hasn't he said Segula? Are you being mean to him? What are you doing? And she's defending me. She's saying, leave him alone. He'll say Segula in his own time. But nah, in her heart, she's wondering, why hasn't he said Segula? And all her friends are pounding that thought. They're just pounding it over and over and over again. Why hasn't he said Segula? Why hasn't he said Segula? So, so one night we're on a date. We go to P.F. Chang's and she orders the Kung Pao shrimps, which is like my favorite. And she takes the lettuce wraps and puts the Kung Pao shrimp in there with the fried green bean sauce. And I think, this woman is the woman of my dreams. So at the end, at the end of the night, I say to her, Segula, well... She can barely keep her hands off of me. I mean, honestly, how can you resist this? I mean, if you sleep in and drink Coke, you too can look like this. Right. Okay. 
So she, she runs inside, she calls her friends. He said Segula to me. He said Segula to me. Oh my God. He said Segula to me. Segula means treasured possession. Treasured possession. It, it, in, in the wedding process, it was like Laka times 10. It's, I don't want to just make you mine. I'm assuring you that I want you to be the most important person in my whole life. Treasured, my special treasure or my treasured possession. Segula. Look at Exodus chapter 19. Same group of people that he said Laka to in Exodus 6. Same exact group of people. Exodus 19, verse 5. Exodus 19, verse 5. Same exact group of people he said Laka to. Here's what he says. Although the whole earth is mine, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of the whole world you will be for me a special treasure. The word is segula. Segula. S-E-G-U-L-A-H. Segula. Once again, if you're them and you hear laka and then you hear segula, what are you thinking? Does God want to marry us? And what's he going to want? What sort of God is this? I hope he's not like the other gods. I hope he doesn't require horrible physical things. I hope he doesn't require mutilation. I hope he doesn't require firstborn sacrifice. And there doesn't seem to be any running from him because he's proved he is God Almighty. He killed all the firstborns of, of, of Egypt. He destroyed their gods. He opened the Red Sea and then crushed the Egyptian army. He brought water out of a rock. Pretty impressive. Um... There, this God has shown, see up to this point, this God has shown that he is all powerful and he cares enough about them to set them free from suffering. But what's he going to want in return? Because whatever he wants, you've got to give it to him. See, this is partly exciting, but partly terrifying. Now, step three. Now, once I say Laka and I say Segula, let's go back to the natural. What word is Sandra longing to hear now? Mikvah. Now, mikvah is far less romantic. Okay, it is far less romantic. Mikvah, see the girls, when I teach on this, the girls love it because they, they go, they go, oh, my own. He, oh, he wants to make me my own. Uh, special treasure, how precious. Mikvah, way less romantic. Mikvah means go wash. Girl, you need a bath. Your breath is stinky. <laughs> Mikvah in the early days was a three-day notice. It was a three-day notice. It was my way of telling the person I was with, in three days, I'm going to ask you to marry me. So I want you to wash to be sure you're clean on the day I ask you to marry me so that I can touch you. You didn't want to be unclean. You see this process a lot in Jewish culture. 
Um, can anybody, I, I love situations like this because it's small enough where we could talk. Can anybody think of a time where a woman bathed before she went to see her husband in order to be extra, extra clean before in his presence? It's a famous story in the Bible. It's really overdone too. No, okay, uh, Esther. Esther bathed for a year in perfume. Which, can we be honest, that's a bit overkill, right? <laughs> Bathe for a year in perfume, you walk in, you're like, good girl, good lord, girl. Woo, wait, what you doing there? A little, a little dab will do you. What are you doing? Right? But that's mikvah. Mikvah is a three-day notice that says, in three days, I'm going to ask you to marry me. I want you to be ready, okay? Because it wasn't, it wasn't like an arbitrary thing. The bridegroom wanted you to be ready when he was coming to ask you to marry him, okay? Exodus 19, verse 10. Exodus 19, verse 10. Once again, give me a little leeway, okay? It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Have the people consecrate themselves for three days and have them wash their clothes. Mikvah. Mikvah. So, let me uh, test your knowledge of the Bible here. What happens three days after Exodus 19, verse 10? What is given to the people? Ten commandments. Ten commandments. So was the Ten Commandments God's proposal, his wedding proposal, to a group of people. In other words, this is what I'm going to expect. All right? Let's go back to the natural. All right? So if I say mikvah to her, between the mikvah and the actual proposal, we would sit down with our parents. Actually, that's a little overstated. We would sit down with our fathers. I would sit down with my father. She would sit down with her father, and we're all together. If you could picture the four of us sitting at a table. And we would write something called a ketubah. A ketubah was a marriage contract. Yes. A ketubah was a marriage contract. It was a prenup. All right? A ketubah was a prenuptial agreement, all right, that, that essentially said, this is the rules by which our covenant is going to be dictated. The worst teaching on marriage you will ever hear is once you make covenant, you're stuck. You just have to put up with whatever they dish out because you chose them and you have to just put up with that. That is, there is a Hebrew word for that. It's called bulibus crapus. Okay? Like, no. All right? A covenant, th th there's, a, there's a also, there's a follow-up Hebrew word to it and that word is balone. All right? All right, so, yeah. Uh, uh, a marriage covenant was based on a ketubah. It was based on a basic agreement agreed to by both parties. If either party, um, in an un, not a mistake, but an unrepentant pattern, refused to keep their part of the deal, that was called marital unfaithfulness. You couldn't just get married under one pretense and then change everything and then expect the person to have to live by that. You, you, that was not the basis on which you got married. And so, and so you didn't have to, like, I'll give you some examples. In every ketubah was the doctrine of oil, bread, and shelter. Essentially, it said, it is the man's responsibility to keep the family warm, fed, and dry. Okay? 
And, and, so, and so laziness was considered marital unfaithfulness. The number one cause of divorce in the first century from women to men was laziness. Like, man, a woman didn't have to put it with a lazy man? Are you kidding me? That is crazy. That is crazy. And so if she couldn't just arbitrarily say um, he's lazy, you had to do it because then you could just leave for any reason. They didn't want that. You had to do it through a three-step process. One-on-one -on -one confrontation, two-on-one confrontation, spiritual leaders on one confrontation. All right? You see that in Matthew 18 with Jesus. So, so if, if she was married to a lazy guy, the first thing she had to do is she had to tell him. If he refused to change, second thing she would do is tell one other person. If he refused to change, third thing they would do is they would confront him with a group of people. And if he still refused to change, then, then she would be told, you have done everything you could do, and he is in an unrepentant pattern of marital unfaithfulness. You're free to do whatever you need to do. You don't have to leave, but you're, he is breaking his covenant. A covenant was based on what was written in that ketubah. Whatever, when we, when we sat down together, I could put anything in the ketubah I wanted. She could put anything in the ketubah she wanted, so long as we both agreed. Because how can two walk together lest they be agreed? So that no one was being blindsided in a marriage. Nobody could say, I didn't know that's what he expected. No one could say, I didn't know that's what she expected. It was all written out right there with two witnesses. My father and her father witnessing it up, all right? So, and, and that was her chance to go, I can't do that. And that was my chance to go, I can't do that. And so whatever was the final ketubah was sitting there. And then based on that ketubah, I would stand and I would say, will you marry me? Will you marry me? And of course, by that point, she says, yes. It's always a good it's a good practice to make sure the person you're going to ask to marry you is going to say yes before you do, right? Like, you don't want to ask someone to marry you and go, man, I hope they say yes. It's, you want to sort of know, right? Otherwise, it gets very awkward and embarrassing, especially if it's in public, all right? So, so I would say, will you marry me? She would say yes. Now, watch this language. You're, you're going to recognize this language immediately. Lots of the Bible is just wedding talk, okay? Listen to this language. When she said yes, I would say, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. And then she would say, well, when are you going to come back to receive me unto yourself? And I would say to her, I do not know the day or the hour. But when my father approves the wedding chamber I'm going to build for you, I will come back to receive you unto myself. Right? Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever heard that language? So when Jesus says things like that, do you understand the people standing there, they're going, does God still want to marry us? It's amazing. It's amazing. Ketubah. I would then go build a wedding chamber, a marriage chamber. Then once that was done, I would come back and receive her unto myself, all right? So I, I would come back for her. She should be ready when I get back. I come back for her, and we have a marriage. At the marriage was step five. Step five was called chuppah. I'm going to explain anarchy in a second. Chuppah. At a wedding, there was two chuppahs. Have you guys ever seen a prayer shawl? Okay, I, had, I have one in the car, but you just picture it. Okay, prayer shawl. First chuppah was at the wedding altar. They would tie the four corners of the prayer shawl to four sticks, and you would stand there to do, the, to do the wedding ceremony. The prayer shawl represented the presence of God, that the promise you're fixing to make based on the ketubah you both signed is done so underneath the witness of the presence of God. They have all kinds of hoopas now. Have you ever seen the movie Meet the Parents? 
Yeah, okay, remember, the, remember Owen Wilson makes that big hoopah? It's all extravagant. So, but in, in just normal weddings, normally they have a piece of white lattice. That even, in, even in Gentile weddings, white lattice that is an archway and you're standing underneath something, it's all symbolic of the hoopah. We're doing this under the presence of God. Under the presence of God. The second hoopah was in the bedroom. In the marriage chamber, they would take four sticks and they would put it in the ground around the bed. And they would tie the four corners of the hoopah over the top of the bed. So that, check this out. So when the marriage, when the, when the wedding was done, I would take my bride, right? And I would walk her to the door of the marriage chamber. At that point, I would pick her up. All right? Do you guys, do we do that in America? Do we, do, do, right? It's a good idea for some, not so good for others, right? I mean, honestly, it's like, I mean, girl, I'll give you a piggyback. I mean, we'll just, yeah, we'll go in. But I, I don't know what in the world, right? So, so you would, you would, you would pick, you would pick your bride up, all right? Do you know, do you know what the word is in English that means to snatch your bride up? The word in Greek is harpozo. The word in English is rapture. Right? The idea of rapture is to pick a bride up. To, to, to snatch her up because the marriage feast is at hand. All right? So I would pick her up. I would take her into the marriage room. I would shut the door and we would consummate our marriage while everybody else waits outside. So you got everybody else just sort of. <laughs> they were way less embarrassed about their sexuality than us. Okay, so I would take her in there, and we would consummate the marriage underneath the hoopah. In other words, God's presence was the witness of our sexuality and the fact that we consummated the marriage. When that was done, we would come out, and then there'd be a party. And 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 that was a Hebrew wedding. All right, so. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, and I will take you as my own, laka. Exodus chapter, ex, ex chapter 19, verse 10, no, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, and out of the whole earth you will be my segula. Exodus chapter 19, verse 10, mikvah, three days, all right? So three days later, there's the giving of the ketubah. In ancient Jewish culture, they do not call the Ten Commandments Ten Commandments. Why? There's no word command there. I don't care if we call them Ten Commandments. I do not care. I think it's great. But it's, it, it's not a commandment. And the, and the, problem, the problem with it is, is that as soon as you say Ten Commandments, or worse, you say law, what it sounds like is these are ten conditions for we to love you. The Ten Commandments were not ten conditions for God to love you. It's ten proofs that he already did. It, in ancient Jewish culture, they call the Ten Commandments a ten-word ketubah. It was a ten-word marriage proposal. All right? And think about it that way, okay? Like, think about, think about the first command. What's the first command? Don't have any other gods, right? Right? In other words, if we're going to be married, I'd like to be the only one. Is that fair enough? Yeah. All right? Commandment number two. Don't, um, don't let idols be in your life. In other words, if we're going to be married, don't carry pictures of your old boyfriends around. Right? Hey, it's going to hurt my feelings. All right? Um, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In other words, if we're going to be married one day in seven, I want it just to be me and you. Right? And, and, and who is he writing this to? 
a group of slaves, right? Let me ask you a question. When was their last day off? They'd never had a day off in their whole life. They'd been in slavery 430 years. Their last day off was never. And so here's a God saying, hey, in our new world, you don't, you don't just get a day off. You have to take a day off a week. Now, was anybody at the base of that mountain going, oh, no, he's putting the law on us? No. If you tell a group of people who've never had a day off that they get a day off, that's called grace. Right? I bet, I bet nobody at the base of that mountain ever thought that there would ever be people who would sit around and argue about whether or not they would have to keep that. To a group of slaves, a day off sounds like a really good plan. And by the way, if you don't keep a Sabbath, your life is boring. If you're so in a rut that you don't keep a Sabbath, your life is in dear, dear trouble. If you think that you are so important that the world wouldn't survive without you taking a day off, then you think you're too important. If you think you're so important that you can't unplug from your life for one day a week and let God be in control, then your world's in trouble because you're too much the center of it. Right? So whatever you think about Sabbath, that's the truth. All right? So, so then he says, hey, don't um, use my name in vain. Which, what is that? What does that mean? Is it, does that mean, oh my God! Is that using God's name in vain? No. Even, even to say something like, Jesus. Now, is that using God's name in vain? No. Actually, the command to use, although it is a bit distasteful, we probably shouldn't do it. Okay? But it's not using God's name in vain. The word, the word there has nothing to do with speaking his name. It has to do with, if you're going to be married to me, don't carry my name in a way that brings me dishonor. In other words, let me say it this way. Don't put the fish on the car and then flip off the person who cut you off in traffic. <laughs> don't, don't wear a cross around your neck and then cuss out the girl at KFC because she messed up your order. Don't do that. Don't put the WWJD bracelet on and then curse your husband out because he left his underwear on the floor. You know that guy that you would expect to die for you if an intruder came in? If he leaves his underwear on the floor, just pick it up. And guys, pick up your drawers. In other words, don't wear the cross around your neck and, and, and then treat your wife poorly because she fell asleep too early. In other words, don't, don't, you see how that's much more than a language issue? Do you see how somebody might never ever utter the words, oh my God, but in fact their whole life is taking his name in vain, even though with their mouth they never said his name? It's much deeper than that. It's much deeper than that. Think about it as a marriage proposal, okay? Think about it that way. Now, I want to show you something. Remember at the beginning I had you write down a word? It started with an A, and no key. Anoki, A-N-O-C-H-Y. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. In Jewish thought, how you start a contract is very important. It the first thing you do is you deliver your intention. All right? Nobody's bored, are they? Everybody all right? Okay, I feel like I've rambled a little, all right? Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. Watch how it starts. This is, this is the first line of the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. All right. 
He starts out with a declaration, I'm your God regardless. These are not conditions for God to love you. These are proofs that he already does. Now, in Hebrew there, the first word is the word anoki. A-N-O-C-H-Y. There's only three words in that whole sentence, actually. Anoki, Jehovah, Elohim. Anoki, Jehovah, Elohim. I am the Lord, your God. Now, if you know Hebrew, you know you can say, I am the Lord, your God, by simply saying two words. Jehovah, I am, Elohim, the Lord God. All right? So why this unnecessary word, anoki? A-N-O-C-H-Y. And why is this unnecessary word the first word of the Ten Commandments? It's huge. And what does it even mean? It's not translated. What, what does it mean? Well, to understand anarchy, you have to understand that every Hebrew word is a picture. It's a pictogram. Every Hebrew letter is a picture. Why? Where did they come from? Egypt. How did Egyptians write? Hieroglyphics. There's four letters there, A, N, C, H, and Y. The O is not there, it's just there to help English people pronounce it, okay? A, N, C, H, and Y. Four letters, four pictures. Here they are. The A is an ox head going into a yoke. It means the, the authority to, to carry something. Your power, your authority. Okay? A, N, N is fish multiplying. So one becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight. It looks like a crescendo. So the first letter is an ox head going into a yoke. Second letter is fish multiplying. Third letter is CH. CH in their language is one letter. It's called a ket. And that is a hedge or a fence. It's a, it's a boundary fence or a hedge. And Y is an upraised hand. It's the first letter of the word Yudah to praise or submit. I surrender. I praise. I submit. So you have four letters, four pictures. First picture, an ox head going into a yoke. Second picture, fish multiplying. Third picture, a hedge or a fence. Fourth picture, an upraised hand. So the first word of the Ten Commandments says this. Your authority is going to multiply inside the hedge of praise and submission. In other words, God's declaration about his ketubah with his people was, I am here to make you bigger. My, my, your, you choose to walk with me, it's going to do nothing but enhance your life. These ten things will do nothing but enhance your life. Carry, carry me around in a way that honors me, it's going to enhance your life. Take one day off a week and spend it with me, it's going to enhance your life. Only have me as your God, it's going to enhance your life. Don't make idols. In other words, never ever think that you can conceptualize God. The issue with idols is not statues. The issue with idols is a belief system that says we can conceive what God is. He says, don't ever think. Let, let me say it this way. I'll quote Richard Rohr on this. Richard Rohr says it this way. The universe isn't only stranger than we can, than we can imagine. No, the, the universe isn't only stranger than we imagined, it's stranger than we can imagine. You do not have the capacity to come up with anything about God that's even closely resembling complete and right. In other words, to, to live the best life requires a humility that says, whatever I think I know about God is such a small piece of the puzzle, I'm open and ready to, to learn anything else. That's going to be your best life. Now, honor your father and mother... It's going to be your best life. Which, by the way, the Hebrew definition of honor has nothing to do with what you say to them. 
The Hebrew definition of honor has everything to do with how you behave away from them. To honor somebody had nothing to do with saying, I honor you. It had everything to do with, with how I acted out here. So, so, for instance, your pastor. Your pastor loves it. He we should. He should love it if you tell him, Pastor, I honor you as my pastor. But I know him, and I can tell you, he would much rather, he loves that, you should encourage your pastor, but he would much rather know that when you're out there and he's not around, that you're giving him in this church a good name. That's honor. The... the <laughs> The best way to honor your pastor is by living for God and for what they stand for here out there, not in here, right? Say, in, other words, in other words, honor your father and mother was a command to um, examine your family tree and end anything that's ungodly and perpetuate anything that is. It's, it has more to do with what you give to your children than how you treat your grandparents. What, what are you passing forward, all right? Hey, don't steal. Now, once again... A group of slaves hearing, don't steal, they're not thinking, oh no, it's the law. What are they thinking? Wait a minute, in our new world, the strong can't take from the weak just because they're stronger? That is awesome. That is amazing. Hey, 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 don't kill each other. Really? In our new world, the strong people can't kill the weak people because they're stronger? In other words, God put a built-in protection around this new world we're going to create? This is Awesome. Awesome. Now, now look, at your, look at your process again. Step one, everybody tell me what it was with some gusto. La ca. Step two, segula. Step three, mikvah. Step four, ketubah, which included a statement of purpose, anoki. I am here to make you bigger. Step five is called hupa, hupa. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. This is after the ketubah was given. Oh, and by the way, you want to know what the rabbis say about the 10th command? The 10th command is, do not covet. Do not covet. The, rab the ancient rabbis teach that there's actually only nine commands. But the 10th command is actually a reward. That if you keep the first nine, you won't want for anything anyway. That, that if, if you live by the first nine, your, your desire for other things won't affect you. Because you'll have all you ever need. Um, so, so Exodus chapter 20 verse 18. After this was given, this is what it says. And the people saw the thunder and the lightning. And they heard the sound of a trumpet. And they saw the mountain cover them in smoke. Picture this. Standing there. You've got Laka, you've got Segula, you've got Mikvah, here's the Ketubah, and all of a sudden there's this covering of God's presence. What is that called? Hupa. All of a sudden they find themselves standing under the Hupa. Now it's very weird. Verse 18 says, and they saw thunder and lightning. First, how do you see thunder? It would, if you're going to say this in English, it would have been much easier to say... And they saw lightning and smoke, and then they heard trumpets and thunder. Because all the words are there. But that's not what it says. It says they saw thunder. How do you do that? Well, if you go look that up, if you go look the word thunder up in the original language, the word is kole, K-O-L-E, kole. Everywhere else in the Bible is translated languages or voices. So they see... 
Languages. How do you see languages? It has to be enveloped in something. It says they saw the thunder and the lightning. The word lightning is glorified fire. It's the same word for Moses hearing the voice out of the burning bush. Okay? So they see languages inside fire. Now I want to see if you've been paying attention. What would the languages have been saying? Will you marry me? The Talmud says this, that on this day in creation, God, sorry, on this day in history, God proposed, check out that word, God proposed through the entire world by using 70,000 tongues of fire. Woohoo! 1857. 1857, an English sociologist went to Rangoon, Burma. Before electricity, before any modern technology, they don't have any modern technology there now. But they went to Rangoon, Burma, and he was studying the people groups. And he went up to the top of the mountains and found a group of people called the Karens. And he asked them, he said, who is your God? I'm just curious, I'm trying to learn about you. Who is your God? And this is what they said, we serve a God named Yava. We serve a God, Y-A-W-A-H. We serve a God named Yava, who proposed to us thousands of years ago by using languages of fire from the sky. So anybody want to make a case that if they died, they're burning in hell? Because they didn't get saved like you. We, I, I, w- I would actually make an argument that their salvation experience is actually better than yours. <laughs> Will you marry me? Sure. What's your name? Yava. <laughs> we serve a God named Yava who proposed to us thousands of years ago by using fire from the sky. The Talmud says that on this day in history, God proposed to all of creation by using 70,000 tongues of fire. And hoopa. But watch the people's response. They get scared because they're not worthy. And so what they choose to do is they say, Lord, we want a relationship with you, but we don't want you to be this close to us. You talk to Moses and you tell him and then he'll tell us. Which is what they got for thousands of years. A priest going between them. But it was something different was offered to him right there. So let me ask you married people something. What do you celebrate at least once a year? Your anniversary. Even if you hate being married, you've got to do something on your anniversary, right? Even if you're like sitting across at the restaurant going, I just wish a comet would come to earth and bring me sweet relief. You still have to go somewhere on your anniversary, right? So God instituted a a yearly celebration of his anniversary. Anybody know what it's called? No. Pentecost, close, Pentecost. So every year they had to celebrate the anniversary of this day by celebrating Pentecost. You can read about it in Leviticus 23. It is the only place in the whole Bible that I can find that God says, I want you to bring an offering made with yeast. In other words, I want a bread offering, but don't make it unleavened. I want it made with yeast. It's the only place. It's the only place. And here's why. He wanted to remind them 
that God wanted to be with them, leaven and all. So what they would do is they would offer their leavened beans, and then the priest would take oil, and he would saturate the bread. And he would say, thank you, my God, that your unleavened life is willing to become one with our leavened life. Pentecost was a celebration of God's willingness to inhabit sinners. To, 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 to take someone who was a criminal and, and not just redeem them and forgive them and break the slave driver off of them, but also be willing to use that ex-criminal to change the world. That, 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 God, that God will take someone with the leaven of alcoholism, the leaven of, of drug addiction, the, the, the leaven of being a murderer, the leaven of being a thief, the leaven of this, the leaven of that. And he doesn't just forgive you. He opens you up and he's willing to fill you, leaven and all. Pentecost. See, the message of Pentecostals for years has been, you need to get the leaven out of your life for God to use you. You need to get the leaven out of your life for God to use you. And let me be clear, you need to get the leaven out of your life. Because it will ruin your life. The slave driver will ruin your life. It will. But that has nothing to do with how God feels about you. The whole point of Pentecost is that God loves you to fill you leaven and all. God wants to marry you issues and all. Baggage and all. God wants to be in your life. He wants to help you sort out your life. No matter how complicated and entangled it is. God wants to get in there with you leaven and all. So the priest. You can read about this in Leviticus 23. You can do it later. Anyway, the priest would take the leavened bread and he would saturate it. And then he made this statement every year. Now the day of Pentecost has fully come. Turn to Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 2, everybody's together. Why? Did they just choose to have a party? Why were they there? Well, they were following Leviticus. They were celebrating their anniversary. This was something that happened every year. Now, I just read you the first Pentecost. Now, look at Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one accord, and they witnessed tongues inside fire appearing over their head, and they heard the sound of a trumpet, and the entire room covered them in smoke. Hang on a second. Where have you seen that before? At Exodus 20, which happens to be the exact same day, just years later. So the exact same thing is happening on the exact same day, just years later. The only difference is this time we spoke back, which is the birth of the church, which is the bride of Christ. The whole thing was about a wedding was about God's willingness to be in you, leaven and all, to sort your life out. He doesn't just want you to go to heaven one day. He wants you to be free today. He wants you to be full today. He wants you to be with him today. Surprise, God wants to be with even you. Issues and all. But I, I, this is Pentecost, man. This is Pentecost. And the two lasting commands he gives us is this. Just as you received Christ, so continue to walk in him. In other words, allow every day to be a surprise. Allow every day, God, you're doing something new. What? You're doing this? I didn't think you could do that. That's okay. You're doing this. Pentecost was full of surprises. Remember when the, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles? The Jewish theologians said to Peter, what is this? How do the Gentiles get our gift? And remember what Peter said? 
I actually don't know. I actually thought the Spirit of God was only for Jews as well. But God's doing this, and who was I to think I could oppose God? These guys were open to big things, even to the point of death. My question to you is this, is how big is God? Can he be bigger? Let me ask you this, what can't God do? Is there anything in your mind that God can't do? And whatever that is, can he save your dad? Can he preach to your dad even after he's dead? Can God do that? Is, is it a biblical concept for Messiah to preach to the dead? In 1 Peter it says Jesus descended into hell and preached to the dead, so I know he did it once. Is, is, is there anything God can't do? Can, can, well, but my brother, he's so far gone. Why, why, why? Is there anything God can't do? But my sister, she's there. Anything God can't do? See, to honor Pentecost and what it's all about is to step back and realize that if God can reach down and save a dreg as big as me, then there's nothing he can't do. God pulled me out of there? What can't God do? Pentecost was a call to remember. If, if, if Jesus hadn't touched you, where would you be tonight? And if you can't answer me quickly, you're not thinking about it enough. If you ever lose sight of what you've been forgiven from, you run the risk of looking down on people who aren't where you are. Where would you be tonight if God hadn't touched you? Pentecost ultimately, though, was, hey, hey, don't just experience the presence of God. Don't, don't just do that for yourself. Actually look around you and don't forget to make other people's lives better. This is why I keep coming back to Victory Outreach everywhere. Because that's what you're all about. You're about experiencing God in such a way that we can free people from what has them in bondage. That's what Pentecost is. And that's why I keep coming back. Plus, I just like it. But I love what Victory Outreaches stand for everywhere. And I'm willing to give my time and my energy to partner with you to help you sort of journey along. Because that's what this is about. That's what you guys live for. When you go back to the men's home tonight, it's not just going back to the men's home. You men are in the men's home because Jesus reached down and he saved you from something. And he's calling you to participate in the redemptive process of other people who he saved. You go back to your own home tonight. You're there because Jesus reached down and saved you from slavery. And now he's called you to experience him in such a way to save other people from slavery. That is what we're called to be. I bless you tonight to know that God wants to marry you, leaven and all. Will you say yes? <laughs> will you let him get in there and fill the leaven parts? Will you, will you then take that experience and share it with the world? Do you, do you realize when you visualize Christianity like this, they don't have to agree with you? Because wherever they're not with God, it's just their leaven too, and God wants to be with them too. And they don't have to agree with you. What if... What if, what, if they, what if they serve a God named Yahweh who proposed to them with a tongue of fire from the sky? Or do they have to say the sinner's prayer? <laughs> no, 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 no. God is at work everywhere. May we embrace 
what he's doing and be a part of what he's called us to be by being the bride of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, you're wonderful. We love you and we honor you. Lord, we say yes to you again. We want you to be right here with us. We say yes to you again. And again and again. And again and again. Lord, let Pentecost be true in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for a Thursday night Bible study.